A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 148 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on Zoom, iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and right on your own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman. And with me, like the C-3PO to my R2, D2, the EU guru himself, the count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody, and I'm assuming in this case that is R2-D2 with W's in it, because we are talking about the Star Wars for the moment. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't sure if I was calling R2, like how you do Luke Skywalker the clone. Or <laughs> I hope I got it right. Yeah, you know, honestly, at this point, I don't care how it's said, just as long as this series picks up some measure of excitement, because those first three were kind of painful to get through. Um, then again, it seems like it is a time for painfulness uh, for those who haven't been following. Um, the good news is that I went through and did interview stuff for a job that I would love to get. That would be sort of a uh, an ultimate job for me as far as just not being necessarily at the school that I'm at now, being able to do a lot of teaching online and things like that. But we haven't heard anything back, though I'm hopeful for it. But to balance out the possible positivity of that, of course, now if you've been following, uh, we had a wreck the other day, uh, this past Thursday the 6th, now, my wife was on the way out of our apartment complex and got into a head-on collision with a guy that was high on pot, texting while he was driving and driving on the wrong side of the road, um, and went directly into the front of our Mustang. So uh, we're betting at this point the car may be totaled. Um, more importantly, though, just as she was getting over all of the other health stuff and finally um, kind of getting back to normal after having her gallbladder taken out, now... She has some type of, of of brain injury, and they're having to go do a CT scan sometime, hopefully later this week, to find out whether it's permanent, to find out how bad it is. Is it just a bad concussion or or what? So it seems like, as as Daniel Caffey of A Few Good Men said, uh, the hits just keep on coming. So um, wow. and I'm kind yes. of looking forward to getting us to a topic that's going to be a little more fun to discuss than this one because the Star Wars really does nothing for me, uh, as we'll get into. Yeah, you know, Jody must have been a princess or a queen in another life or has that coming or something, man, because that girl's had a really, really rough string of late when it comes to health, man. Here's, here's pulling for her and may the force of others be with her. Thank you. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. 
questions that have bothered you for a long time. What was George Lucas's original rough draft like? Or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we continue to explore Dark Horse Comics' The Star Wars, based on the original rough draft screenplay by George Lucas. Now, before we jump too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Now this time we are talking about issues 4, 5, and 6. Uh, we're dividing this into three chunks. 1, 2, 3, which you've already heard, 4, 5, 6, which is this episode, and then 7, 8, and that 0 issue that's basically like a cross between a sketchbook and a behind-the-scenes type of thing uh, in our next episode here. So, honestly, this middle chunk, it's... Put it this way, the pacing is better than the first three. That's not saying a whole lot, because the first three's pacing was pretty horrible. Um... It's again, it's based on this rough draft version of Star Wars uh, or of A New Hope. So it's basically somewhat familiar situations, somewhat familiar characters with different twists on them, tweaks to them uh, in their earlier incarnation, so to speak. I said last time, and I'll say again, if this had been what Star Wars was when it actually hit theaters, it would not have grown the way that it did. It would not have had the type of fan following that it has now. It would not probably have survived to have sequels, quite frankly. It would have fit very well if you've ever seen any of the really, really old footage of Star Wars as it was being made, and there's this, this shot or this little sequence where it's basically supposed to be Luke and C-3PO looking for R2-D2 in the land speeder. They're zipping across Tatooine as if the way they shot it is a close-up of them from the side, and a rear projection screen running the background zipping by beside it. And it's Luke and, and C-3PO talking about something that's wrong with the land speeder, where he's like, oh yes, that's much better, or whatever that C-3PO is saying. It is incredibly campy, goofy looking, and it looks pretty cheap. Um, I imagine that this version of A New Hope, had it been in theaters, this and its serialized Flash Gordon feel would have gone perfectly with that type of effects work. It would have felt campy, B-movie, cheap, relative to what we actually got with A New Hope when it finally came out. It would not have necessitated, or uh, wouldn't have felt necessarily correct, on par with, the type of effects development that they wound up having to do when making A New Hope to get things like the Starfighter shots and whatnot done. It would not have justified that expense because the story would have to have been carried by the special effects. The story itself would not have made it. This middle section, it's probably of the three sections that we've divided it into, it's the least ridiculous to me. It's the most Star Wars feeling of them. But unfortunately, it ends with a cliffhanger, so to speak, that is leading us into one of the absolute most ridiculous concepts that this version of A New Hope ever sees that causes the entire ending of the story to really feel moronic to me. So, it's the best that we've got out of the three episodes worth of chunks we're going to cover, but again, that's not saying a whole heck of a lot. But still interesting in that you can see how Star Wars developed from this into what it eventually was and give us much more of an appreciation for what George Lucas was able to pull off in a relatively short period of time leading into the film's release in 77. Absolutely. You know, I said it last episode about how you know, this is like an exercise in what could have been, uh, you know, as we move forward into a realm of new films of Star Wars, a new canon and all that, 
you know, for, for longtime EU fans, us legend fans that have this plethora of information about a universe that is now parallel or always was parallel, depending on how you want to look at quotes that have came from Lucas, Lucasfilm, Lucas licensing, Lucas books, Lucas publishing, you name it. They've all said something different. But the bottom line is, is what we think we know is not necessarily going to be the case. This is a great example of what that's going to be like, only in the reverse direction. You know, I mean, when we're sitting down and watching the film, it's like, this is canon. When we're sitting down to this, it's like, this could have been canon. And I'm enjoying it for the ride that it could have been. But you're 100% right, Nathan. Had this been what we got in theaters, this project, it was too much like Flash Gordon. I mean, they succeeded 100%. He wanted to be like Flash Gordon, nailed it. This would have only been a cult classic and probably nothing more. Uh, you know, the, the story was interesting. It has kind of like a Rocky Horror feel to it at times where you're like, uh, I want to like it, but I don't know if it's okay to like it, you know? Uh, I'm, I'm with you on, you know, four, five, and six are probably the strongest part of the story. Uh, I like the sacrifices that come up in this part of it, the, the action and stuff was kind of fun for me. But, you know, when I was in last episode, I'd mentioned, you know, I was reading it as we went along. Well, by this episode, I've read all the way to the end. Uh, you know, once I got through this, it was enough that I had to find out what happened next. And, you know, there, there's an aspect of it as we get into next episode where, you know, I'm left wanting more, but I think overall it, it kind of, again, shows you that creative process that Lucas does, how he presents things like it's already thought out. And yet what you realize after the fact is that a lot of the times he just throws names of things out there and, and he'll just develop the stuff later. And I think that that's where this is suffering because it was a very rough draft. That process that he does that's that pacing aspect that Nathan mentions, you know, I mean, like Lucas jots down some ideas and, you know, he doesn't fill in all the dots as to how they go from, from point A to point B. Well, last episode I'd mentioned, you know, how, how, uh, uh, star Sun had shown up, you know, and, and literally all they'd mentioned was, you know, go fetch him on the comm link and bring him here. And, and then all of a sudden he's there with the group. Like they don't mention anything else like that, but there are moments throughout this arc where little things happen. And all of a sudden new characters have shown up and you're like, wait, when did they get there? Like, it, the pacing is going too fast at times and slow in others. And I, I truly attribute that to the creative process that is Lucas's. It's not a fault or a flaw per se. It's just something that it's interesting to see and witness through the creative process by being able to see where he came from. I mean, again, I get back to that aspect. Nathan, you've, you know, you've read all the different versions of this process and stuff. So you've got more of an idea of how it evolved along the way than say I do. I mean, I have a very limited idea of what that stuff, you know, was and what it could have been. Uh, but you actually, you, you fleshed into that. You've developed that for your uh, timeline and stuff. So you've got that information. So I'm sure for you, it's, it's a different trip than it is for me. I'm like, I'm, I'm just kind of scratching my head going, I wonder what that evolved into. I mean, you know, there are names and stuff I recognize all over the place, but how these concepts mutated and transformed and became what they became. I mean, right now you've got Anakin in love with Leia, and later it becomes Luke in love with Leia. But even when episode four was created, Luke wasn't Leia's brother then. So it's, it's again, it's interesting to watch how it just continued to evolve even after the movies were being made. And I would have to go back and look um, that that great The Making of Star Wars book by Jonathan Rinsler includes segments about each of the different drafts and ends it with a bullet point after summarizing each one as to, you know, what has changed, what stayed the same, what was finally set in stone going towards the final draft of A New Hope and everything. But I would have to go back and look to see which versions of the story 
Lucas actually shopped around to the different studios before finally getting one to say yes. But I sit back and think, you know what? If it was anything around this version of the story that he was shopping around, no wonder they were constantly saying no. They knew they didn't have the type of magic that eventually the actual film would have. Um, it's, it's an oddity. It's definitely an oddity. I'm glad Dark Horse got a chance to actually produce it prior to losing the license to Marvel and everything, but I don't want to give anybody any misconceptions about what they're seeing here. Go into this reading it as sort of a historical curiosity of what might have been. Don't go into it looking for a great story. You're not going to find it. Yeah, I mean, look at Flash Gordon. Look at Buck Rogers. You know, the type of serial shows that Lucas was aiming Star Wars after. They're not around anymore. They died out. There was a reason for that. They were campy. Uh, you know, I think Lucas sought out for something. It was a noble pursuit, but thankfully it evolved into something greater than, the sh than those serial shows that he was seeking to emulate. I mean, I think for me, that's that's the biggest thing that, I've come away with that we really got lucky here. I mean, you know, shows like Flash, Gordon, Buck Rogers, they, you know, like I've seen them, but they're not something that I'm like, oh yeah, let's go watch that again, you know? And I'm glad that that wasn't the same reaction I had with Star Wars. You know, I do know people that had that reaction, and I think that that also comes down to, you know, the types of genres that you're into and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I'm, I was able to, you know, really get into those kind of things and enjoy them, but a lot of lines like how Firefly, you know, had its own cult following, you know, Star Wars did a very similar thing when it came out as just Star Wars. And, you know, that cult following grew and Lucas was a genius with the way that he presented it later and the way he built the franchise. I mean, we got gold based off of this and that I, I keep coming back to that. It's very cool to see how it could have been a crap fest, but we really turned the right to the right corner and blazed forward at rapid speed. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, so with our issue summaries, again, sort of condensed down into one summary per issue as opposed to breaking it up, as we often do, we pick up on Aquilae, uh, where apparently one of the children's songs is, So they live by the sea, and Aquilae was always free. Blech. Yeah, we definitely don't need children singing nursery rhymes in Star Wars, in my opinion. Um, but the captain and his wife were very, very nice. Anyway, um, so we start out with what would be sort of an opening crawl used by Dark Horse to lead us into this, just to catch everybody up. A devastating attack by the Empire Space Fortress, not called the Death Star at this point, has left the planet Aquilae, Leia's planet, defenseless. Imperial General Darth Vader, who's not a Sith in this case, sends troops to capture Princess Leia, who is Aqualai's monarch now that her father, the King, has been killed in the bombardment. Her mother is still alive. Queen Bria, but she was queen by marriage to the king, so with King Chaos gone, it does mean that it goes to Leia. Jedi General Luke Skywalker, or Jedi General in this case, not a uh, young Jedi, Padawan Anakin Starkiller, and Agent White Sun hastily arranged to spirit Leia and her two young brothers to the safety of the Ofuchi system. Learning of their escape, Vader enlists a new ally, Prince Valorum, not Finnis Valorum, 
a knight of the Sith and sworn enemy of the Jedi. Think Valorum plus General Vader equals the Darth Vader that we know later. After a battle with a platoon of stormtroopers in the desert, that is, stormtroopers carrying lightsabers a uh, Macquarie style, Skywalker's group races with even more urgency to the spaceport at Gordon, like Mos Eisley, where he must rendezvous with Eurelian, not Corellian, Eurelian, smuggler Han Solo to find a way off-planet. So we pick up with Luke and White Sun and R2-D2 and C-3PO in one speeder that uh, basically looks kind of utilitarian, like a little uh, skiff to carry cargo on. And then you've got Anakin with Leia and the two boys. They're in one that looks a lot more like the type of speeder we would see on Naboo in Episode 1. They're still heading for the spaceport and wind up running into a group of stormtroopers who are riding on what basically appears to be battle ostriches. They look like giant ostriches with dino riders, if you remember that series, helmets on their heads. Um, they're stopped. Supposedly, they're able to talk their way out of the situation, only, yeah, they didn't buy it, and uprun the troops at them again. Uh, White Sun and Luke managed to take out some of them, but there's another group that's gone after the other vehicle. And... Unfortunately, Anakin manages to fight them off except for two of them, and they are able to be stopped by Luke and White Sun. But what that winds up meaning is that Anakin gets himself injured, and it's sort of a lesson in how he wasn't able to live up to expectations. It's, it's not a, well, you'll get him next time, it's a, you missed two. I know, I couldn't, don't let it happen again. Not a whole lot of uh, room for failure at this point within his Jedi training. But they're safe. And now they're moving on. At the Aquilae Command Center, which has been taken over by the Empire, we have Darth Vader and Valorum trying to determine where the next step is for these characters, and they believe that they're heading for the spaceport at Gordon, so Valorum is going to make sure to get there first uh, with some Imperials. At the Gordon spaceport, this wretched hive of scum and villainy, so to speak, we do get a cantina scene in which Luke and White Sun are going inside to meet Han Solo. There is a he-doesn't-like-you-I-don't-like-you-either type of scene with a couple of aliens. Yes, Luke winds up having to cut one of their arms off and kills the other one, um, but it's not uh, him just sort of going and then meeting with Han Solo. There's kind of a cross here in that he does uh, sort of a sorry-about-the-mess-like-Han-Solo by telling White Sun to give the bartender something to keep it, he's an alien, so instead of him, it, quiet. They finally do wind up meeting Han Solo, who is there by himself. No Chewbacca in this part of the story yet. Uh, Han Solo is this green alien, a Eurelian, who has fought alongside Luke Starkiller sometime in the past, uh, during the Rebellion and all, the Jedi Rebellion and all. And it turns out that someone else is already there trying to help, and that is Starkiller. So Kane Starkiller is already there, and it's kind of cool to see him reunited with Luke, though it's kind of a, wait a second, you left Anakin with him to train, and then just came here to get Han Solo, who you knew they were going to need anyway. Why didn't you just stay with him and help him in the first place? It makes it feel as though there's a lot longer time passing between that scene and this one than actually seems to transpire within the story. But they wind up getting with some of their allies. And the idea is they need to get the heck off of the planet but they don't have a ship to do it on. They're going to have to basically get aboard a ship or take 
a ship in order to pull this off. So they're trying to make arrangements for how they're going to do this. And this scene where they're having this conversation is intercutting with some rebels, apparently, being captured by the Knight of Sith, by Valorum, and executed. They're hung by their hands and then zapped by these uh, flying ball things. Look kind of like, uh, you know, ITO and these little, you know, terror droids, interrogation droids that we get, like, in A New Hope proper, just not quite as cool looking in this case. What they wind up figuring out is that, yes, they can get themselves uh, to a transport, essentially. There's a Baltarian, possibly a reference to Battlestar Galactica, freighter that is going to be taking off. They'll be the crew of that freighter. Excellent. But in order to get past the scanners, they're going to have to put the two boys into suspended animation within what are called shielded micropacks. Now, they call them micropacks. They're these big egg-shaped things that... Uh, Anakin and White Sun are going to have to carry on their backs. They're actually pretty large because it's not like they're shrinking the boys down. They're just kind of getting them stuck inside these packs. Honestly, they must be in fetal position because otherwise I'm not sure how they would fit inside these packs that are going to be worn on their backs. Unfortunately, they only have one power unit. So rather than having one of the boys stay behind or trying to hide him here, which would wind up just getting them killed or getting that one boy killed, Starkiller... Kane Starkiller, that is, of course, Anakin's father, basically, who's more machine than man at this point, lifts open his shirt and says, you know, my power cell has more than half its life, take it, and yanks his own power cell out to be used to help the other son. Which, of course, means he's sacrificing himself, and as his system shut down, he dies there in his son's arms. Uh, but Anakin, somewhat stoic, at least in... Uh, after a brief, you know, Dad, trust my <coughs> judgment, son. Serve your new teacher. I'm so proud. Cough. May the... And he dies. But he finally says, it had to be. Now he flows with the force of others. And with that, they're able to get the two boys into suspended animation, have White Sun and Anakin each carry a pod on their back, and they're on their way to head out. Just as they do, Leia has a moment to say, I just wanted to say... But Anakin cuts her off. We will find there is a rather hastily done, even more hastily done than Episode 2 love story kind of starting to brew here in the background. But we end issue number 4 as our group of heroes, Leia, Han, White Sun, Anakin, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Luke, are on their way to catch a ship. You know, I, I gotta admit, Starting right where you're ending here with them walking away. I, I gotta like the costumes. Like everything in this like looks like something you might actually find like at a Ross or you know, Goodwill even. Uh White Sun's got like a racer's jacket, you know, Anakin's Starkiller's got that classic Luke in episode four. And you know, Skywalker's got the old trench coat that you'd see in New York. So I I like the fact that the uniforms and stuff that they're wearing are things that we would see. Uh, one thing, though, you know, you were mentioning the opening crawl, and they, they call him Agent White Sun, which jumped out at me because all through the comic, they're calling him Captain White Sun, which they're also doing for Captain Starkiller, which is Padawan Anakin. So I was always like, does that mean that White Sun's also a Jedi? Does that make him also a Padawan? I mean, how did Anakin get the title Captain? just because he became a Padawan? And what in the heck does that title? I mean, there was there was a lot of those type of aspects of of how the process goes here where, where we're just expected to understand things. And I'm like, but wait, oh, there's got to be more to that, right? Uh, what? 
Uh, Skywalker himself, though, he kind of reminds me at times of Daz Jenner from uh, Dark Times uh, when he uh, had the beard grown out and his hair was short. Although, except when Kane dies, there is a, a panel there uh, where he is saying, this is uh, Luke uh, Skywalker, he goes, prepare the boys, Dados and Akko will see to the proper rights for Kane. We'll have little time. In that scene, when you're looking at him right there, tell me that doesn't look like Matt Damon. <laughs> I'm not sure I saw the Matt Damon connection, but this is another one. I, we talked about this last time with the artwork, that it really does seem as though there are photo references for all these characters. They are much more consistent than we're used to seeing with Star Wars characters in uh, even individual comic series in a lot of cases. Uh, and the artwork makes it feel like you're watching something that could almost be photorealistic on television uh, or in a movie theater a lot of times. It's some of the the better artwork that we get with Star Wars, although sometimes the facial expressions are a little bit off, uh, for lack of a better term here. Um, but I wonder, again, if this whole sense of, wow, what's going on? What about these things that they're not telling us and sort of the jumping around? Um, if that's not so much an issue with this as just an issue with Star Wars when it first came out anyway, because there was a lot of stuff that I think probably would have thrown off original viewers of Star Wars in theaters. I mean, it was not a lot of stuff, not as much as in this case and not as technical in this case. But this was a whole new universe, and it was a situation in which people were trying to catch up on what was going on, and the film did start in media res, as we see it in theaters. It's just that in this case, it feels as though, because it relies so little on archetypes, so little on the mythological thing of the hero's journey and whatnot, and really feels much more Flash Gordon, just straight sci-fi, we expect more explanation, and the stuff they don't explain seems to be a lot more technical in order to make sure we understand everything than what we got with A New Hope actually in theaters. I don't think a kid could have picked up and watched this story and fully understood everything. Whereas I think a kid could pick up and watch A New Hope and understand it the first time through. Oh, absolutely. Uh, another thing that was compelling to me was the Sith mask. Uh, you know, Valorum's wearing a mask very reminiscent to the one that we saw at the very beginning of the entire arc except for that one was more had that japanese uh samurai style flair this one is very much as nathan said last episode the uh, sub-zero scorpion mask from uh, mortal Kombat. when this character eventually takes it off you realize there's no real reason for him to be wearing the mask so that was another one of those things that, that kind of oh i wonder why that was uh but the interesting thing and we mentioned it last episode as well was the fact that the Empire had cracked down on power, uh, like power units and stuff. So when Han Solo and Anakin show back up, they're like, we could only get one unit. The Empire's methods are proving to be very effective. This will work fine, says Kane Starkiller. One of the boys will have to stay. Because, of course, at this point, they put that plug in into one of the two, and the one goes green, the other's still red. And then one of the rebels, because a group of rebels showed up in the midst of all this that, that barely even get a mention. You know, they're just there and, and helping them out. But he goes, uh, we can't hide him for long. The risk is too great. Whichever boy doesn't go, the Empire's henchmen will find him and destroy him. And then Leia screams, no! Hey, you know, for me, I think this was probably one of the best scenes in the whole book because they're I don't know. It, it adds to some of the sacrifice. These three issues have a lot of sacrifice for me. And, and for me, 
that's always something in Star Wars that I've always enjoyed. You know, Obi-Wan Kenobi sacrificed himself on the Death Star so Luke and them could get out. You know, I mean, Han Solo, he doesn't fight. He sacrifices himself, lets himself be put into the Carbonite so they can all, you know, do what they got to do. Chewie, you got to look after the princess, you know, that kind of stuff. There's always been that aspect of it. Vader, he sacrifices himself even for Luke. So that constant theme of, of sacrifice that runs throughout Star Wars has always been something that jumps out to me. So this scene is one of those that I found it was probably one of the more powerful scenes in the whole story. You know, so so Luke, he goes, not while they're in my charge. We'll find another way to get him through. And that rebel again, he goes, there's no other way. We've analyzed every possible alternative. You can't jeopardize the entire. And Han comes in. We have no time for discussion. The freighter leaves at 0300. We must decide now. And then, of course, White Sun, he's, you know, looking over as R2 is playing Dejeric with the uh, twins and 3PO's looking over. What about R2? We could lobotomize him and use his energy pack. Skywalker's got his hand to his head like, oh, God, this is getting worse. It's not compatible, he says. Anakin goes, we'd have to completely change the... And then at this point, this is when Kane realizes the futility of it all. You won't have to. My power unit is more than half light. And this is, again, like in issue one when he rips open his shirt and he's like, I'm more machine now. He does a similar thing and he rips it open and all his computer parts that we've seen before are, are sparking and falling apart they're not even connected all together very well and he rips his shirt up and use it and he comes up and he rips it out of his hand the machine power isn't doing me any good here take it dad you'll die and i like at this point his dad the art wise his face is already graying like as soon as he's pulled it out in the next panel he's already graying dad and he grabs onto him trust me <coughs> judgment son serve your new teacher i'm so proud <coughs> may the and then he drops over in his arms. I I don't know. For me, the fact that, that he logically saw that his power unit was the only option to get these kids off there. And he was willing to make that sacrifice for the good of the mission. That, to me, was classic Star Wars. That was, was one of the key elements of what I love about the saga. Smacking me in the face. And that was a moment in this that I really, really enjoyed. It certainly works in terms of giving him... Uh, more of a purpose in the story. It's the first element of sacrifice, right? We get him sacrificing himself. We will see White Sun do it here in just a little bit um, as we continue on with these three issues and all. But again, it's just felt... It didn't feel organic to me. Uh, no pun intended with the guy being a cyborg or anything like that. It felt shoehorned in, in a sense. I think it's because Kane disappeared for so long in the story. I mean, I get the idea, or at least I assume... He was the one going ahead of them to try to get with Han Solo so they can be ready to get them off the planet once they're able to get Leia and the two boys, right, Biggs and Wendy, and yeah. get them to the spaceport. But yeah. the fact that he disappears for so long makes it seem as though he's sort of – it makes it seem like he's sort of the deus ex machina element of the story. He shows up when necessary and provides that little – bump of where we need to go you know you would think by what we saw back in the first issue that he is meant to be a major character of this story because we're introduced to him and anakin and we see the death albeit not really mourned all that much uh, of deke and then by the time we get to a point where they're going after the princess and the boys well goodbye right he sort of disappeared from the story where he would have been probably a big help throughout what we've seen in the last couple issues, only to now show up here at the spaceport, and he's really only there to sacrifice himself and provide the power unit. 
maybe, just maybe, if they had had the sense that this was going to be their plan all along, they could have spent some of the time they were waiting for our heroes looking to get another power unit. Uh, or maybe they could have gotten contacted beforehand about the incompatible power unit in R2-D2 and worked to try to figure out where they could get another one or something that would make it compatible. It just seems as though his sacrifice in this case was necessary only because of their lack of planning. It does not feel like the necessary noble sacrifice that we get from Obi-Wan Kenobi and a New Hope, that we get from a Han turning himself over to the Imperials, that we get from Vader allowing himself to die in the moment to jump in and save Luke at the end of Return of the Jedi, and so on and so on. It feels, again, it feels unnecessary. Although, I will say that on balance, if you look at the different sacrifices within the Star Wars films themselves, I have to say that one of the sacrifices that, of the big ones, at least, of these sacrificial moments, um, not counting characters who just died, but those who sacrificed themselves in some way. So I don't count the idiotic way that Kit Fisto and, and company wind up dying to Sidious without really ever fighting and crumble to the ground like they're play-acting that they're dying in Revenge we'll of the Sith. buy you some time, Mace! Don't, uh! Oh, I'm dying! Oh, I'm going to lean my head upwards, cringe, and slump to the ground with my mask! Yeah, Kit Fisto's death will always bug me the way that that was carried out. Um, but if we're talking about actual sacrifices, not just oh-so-and-so was killed, probably it was A New Hope where the sacrifice felt the least necessary, in a sense, to me. Vader sacrificing himself to stop the Emperor from killing Luke, yes, he needs to jump in there. Luke is about to die, and the electricity is going to wind up killing Vader, who is already weakened. Okay, got it. Um, Han, they're overmatched. They have no chance of escape, at least by letting himself be taken into custody. He buys a chance for Leia and Chewie to escape, although it'll turn out that that's not going to be the case, because, of course, the deal was changing all the time. But Obi-Wan, in the middle of fighting Vader, as the others are trying to escape, there's always been a part of me that wondered, what if, instead of continuing to fight Vader, he just disengaged at that moment, ran to the ship, and they got the hell out of there? Yeah. Then Luke would have had Obi-Wan to train him all along. And the way he sacrifices himself, it's not like he's sacrificing himself to buy time for the others. Because when he does sacrifice himself, they still have to run aboard the ship. Luke, if nothing else, has stopped running toward the ship now to, because he does the whole no and starts shooting at the Imperials and such. Really, the only thing that stops them from being captured as they're leaving, well, two things. One is the fact that they're going to be tracing the ship anyway. And two, that Vader starts just walking forward, and when it's, blast the door, kid, and Luke shoots the um, the door controls and causes the blast door to close, Vader, being at that point, you know, thought of as the older man and much more of the broadsword fighter than a samurai-style fighter, doesn't dive through the opening or something like we would expect he'd be able to do in any other incarnation other than the classic trilogy of the character. Yeah. Um. So there's always been an element where if it wasn't for the fact that he comes back as the ghost, if it wasn't for the fact that we have this big mythology built around the idea of Force ghosts and the sacrifice of Obi-Wan, how it really sort of makes Luke stronger in that it's going to help drive Luke and his spirit can teach Luke and guide him to Yoda and all this stuff. Just in the context of only A New Hope, 
Obi-Wan's sacrifice has always felt like the weakest justified sacrifice out of the various characters that we see in the films themselves. That being said, this feels like it's in keeping, I guess, with the way Lucas was planning out that sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that gets the characters on their way, it does help them, and it does serve the story, but you can imagine a lot of different ways it could have played out that wouldn't have necessitated the sacrifice. So the sacrifice, yeah. while being a moment that, you know, fits the, the general theme of self-sacrifice in Star Wars, to me, reading that scene, not very powerful in reading this. One, because it doesn't feel like it was necessary. It feels like it was shoehorned in and he's just back to die. And two, because of, just like with his son dying, it seems there is very little emotional response to the character's death on behalf of the other characters. Um, you know, it's nice to see that the Jedi are somewhat stoic and at peace, but that's not a theme that really is used within this story in terms of talking about Jedi training. There's not a lot of bring your mind at peace, be stoic, don't let emotions rule you kind of stuff in the way that this draft is written. So for them to be that stoic might have worked on film as a way of saying, ooh, they're all like stoic and 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 reserved, they're monk-like, ooh. But on the page, it doesn't work as well. It just feels like there's an emotional kick that's not there. My opinion, are, of course. These guys are a bunch of dicks. <laughs> they don't care about nothing, man. Yeah. No, I mean, I see what you're saying, especially with Kenobi. I mean, that was one, you may strike me down and I'll become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. I was like, really? You're, you're just a talking voice. That's not a lot of power, but okay. So, yeah, I mean, I you've definitely presented a, a good counter-argument there. <laughs> All right, so that moves us into issue number five, the second of these. We are at the spaceport as we begin, and we have our characters. Remember, the two boys are in the pods being carried on the two characters' backs, trying to work their way through basically what amounts to customs at this point. Um, they wind up getting to, basically, inside this uh, uh, hallway uh, within the compound and all, and they find, you know, this is our ride, figuring they found their ship that they're going to take off in. And as it turns out that Biggs' uh, little pod is losing power faster than normal because it's using that half-charged one from Starkiller, Luke and Han um, decide to basically run off to, well, essentially the bridge, to make sure that everything is good to go, to make sure that they are ready because none of the other crew members seem to be there, and that seems a little odd to them. Um, there's some question as to whether or not they were meant to be the only crew members or meant to just come on as if they are members of a bigger crew as their way of sort of sneaking out of there. When Han and Luke run up to the bridge, though, turns out who's waiting for them but Prince Valorum, who apparently knew which ship they were going to try to take, and some stormtroopers. And not only do the stormtroopers break out their sort of white lightsabers, Luke and Han break out their red lightsabers. Han apparently has a red lightsaber of his own at this point, which is kind of interesting. But they wind up yeah. being captured, and they're taken away. That, that is, Han and Luke are taken away. They've got uh, energy binders on them. They're being followed by R2 and C-3PO, who are not held at all. They're just kind of trailing behind the stormtroopers. Basically, basically, it's a pair of stormtroopers, then our two heroes in binders, then two more stormtroopers, then the droids just kind of lagging behind. Until finally, at the right moment, Luke and Han both jump up, and they basically zap their binders on some kind of energy thing on the ceiling. It looks almost like just a set of lights, but surely lights would not have had the effect of blasting 
electricity that winds up knocking off their binders. But suffice to say, they are freed. And they whoop up on the stormtroopers to be able to get the heck out of there. Uh, the next step is they're going to have to free the others. Because apparently the others have been captured, we just didn't see it. And they're in some holding cells with these uh, bars going across them that are made of energy. So Luke throws one of the stormtroopers into the energy. It shorts it out. And everyone is freed, except the two boys have been taken away inside their little pods. So the group winds up splitting up. Uh, we have Leia and Han, the droids, and Luke go one direction uh, to get everything ready to get the heck out of there. And then uh, Anakin and White Sun go off to find the storage room where they're going to be able to find the two boys. As... Luke's team gets to the do to the uh, the main hatch to get the thing open to get the heck out of there. Uh, the other two do manage to find the pods, uh, toss them onto their backs, and basically fight their way through some stormtroopers to get out of there. At which point, Anakin winds up throwing a neurostunner, which is not sure if it's ethical to use or not, uh, which is like this holocron-looking triangular thing that zaps all the different stormtroopers. Think of it kind of as a stun grenade, or an ion grenade and what it looks like, but a stun grenade and the effects of it. Um, they get to the main hatch, they all manage to escape just barely as the hatch comes down and crushes a stormtrooper. Uh, they manage to fight their way through more Imperials and find themselves a ship that they're going to simply take, you know, hijack the thing. The ship itself looks very much like the Tantive Four. It's the Rebel Blockade Runner design of the thing, essentially, but looking a little bit like a cross between the two versions of the so-called Tantive Four that we've got, right? The one from Episode Four and the one from Episode Three that in Legends continuity became the Sundered Heart because it doesn't look like the Tantive Four either in Episode Four or in the Clone Wars. It's kind of a cross between the two of those in its look here. Um, just like in A New Hope in theaters, Imperial Stormtroopers are blasting away at the ship as they are trying to take off. They do manage to blast their way out of there, actually slamming their way through uh, the closed hatchway to the hangar, and they're off into space. Once they're into space, it's a chance for the characters to sort of take stock of what's going on, essentially. The two boys and their little pods, they're not released yet, though you would think they certainly could have been. Um, but no, they're still left in the pods and stuck in a life pod just in case they ever need to get the heck out of there. Uh, they plug in Biggs's into a power source, so he's not going to wind up dying because of the whole, you know, half-used power thing. Uh, Leia asks the obvious question. Couldn't we let my brothers out now? And Anakin says, it's better this way. Things are going to get rough soon. Okay. So it's better to have them in the little pods where they presumably could get destroyed without even having a chance to run. It's better to have to carry around the pods. Yeah, whatever. Leia <laughs> then says, you get one of the more ridiculous moments, I think, of the story as that we talk about shoehorning something in. Right, she was the one who was snarky with him earlier, very much like Princess Vespa and Lone Star initially. Um, you expect her to start talking about, you know, her royal luggage. She says, stay with me. I wanted to thank you. I think I love you. What? And, and Anakin, Anakin's face, yeah. Yeah, Anakin cuts her off, you know, what's this silly talk of love? And we're thinking as the audience, you're damn straight. What? What is this silly talk of love? Stop acting like a child and start behaving like a queen. Um, you belong to the people of Aquiline. My job is to return you to them and nothing more. And of course, her being a teenager. Oh, I hate you. The sooner we're on Ofuchi, the better. Oh, God. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so 
So Anakin goes in, crashes in his bunk, and he's apparently sharing a room with like a bunk bed thing uh, with White Sun. And White Sun comes in and is asking what's going on, you know, uh, where's Leia? And White Sun says she went forward to check on the princes. What's going on with you two? Anakin answers, I kid you not, we're in love. She loves me, and I just realized I love her. You're asking for trouble. She's a queen. You're a warrior. Do you know what you're saying? I don't care. I've got to talk, and thankfully, that is interrupted by the ship being attacked. And we wind up having TIE fighters essentially blasting uh, at the ship. Anakin and White Sun both get into the gunnery pods, essentially the same thing as the gun uh, emplacements on the Millennium Falcon, so they can blast away at the TIE fighters as they are being attacked. And we see a quick view from space as they're being blasted of the TIE fighters flying over this blockade runner looking ship. And I gotta say, the TIE fighters look pretty cool because while they look pretty much like standard TIE fighters with the dimensions of Macquarie drawings that make it a lot more like the slight change of dimensions to them for Star Wars Rebels, their wings uh, are actually basically clear. You can see through them. They still have the little uh, the lines on them, but the lines are white. The entire contraptions are sort of a grayish, brownish, chrome look. And the actual wings are transparent. I thought that was pretty cool. So we end issue number five with a space battle ensuing and apparently a relatively weak love story beginning. Oh, and the other cool thing is that the ties are actually called Hunter Destroyers, which I thought was a little weird. At first, I'm like, Hunter Destroyers? What are those? And I turn to the next page. Oh, it's a TIE fighter. Okay. <laughs> so that was interesting. I, I liked when they first show up at the port and Anakin's like, I don't like the feeling of this. And Skywalker's like, your senses are strong, but it's a very small disruption. It's the Night of the Sith, possibly. Stay alert. You know, and Anakin, like, I mean, he dialed right in on it. Like, dude, hey, ding, ding, ding for the Padawan. <laughs> but the Han Solo busting out the lightsaber, that was another one of those moments that I had to stop. I was like, wait, what is going on? Why does he have a, a lightsaber? Like, is this something everybody's carrying around lightsabers? Like, this isn't a Jedi's weapon anymore? What's going on with this? Because it's it's weird, you know, you've got, you got Skywalker with a lightsaber, you've got Han with a lightsaber, you've got Anakin, who's a Padawan, who typically you would think would have a lightsaber, and then, I don't know, does... does White Sun have a lightsaber? Because, I mean, he's a captain. Anakin's a captain. I'm just, I'm all these titles and these weapons that should go with certain classes. I'm so confused. Are there four Jedi here or just two? You know, I mean, so there's that aspect that I immediately start going, what in the hell is going on? Uh, but during that scene when all the, the, they're in the handcuffs and they're walking and they jump up into the lights, you know, I, I was thinking something similar, like either it was in an energy grid or the lights, like, had a lot of energy and they busted through and, and that caused the, the, handcuffs to short out but i like how you know when the battle's going on skywalker's like grab a weapon and he ignites his lightsaber and he strikes the back of one of the stormtroopers coming at han and he's like watch out for it. and han throws out and he says he finishes the sentence explosives and <laughs> it shows the two of them jumping away as the bomb's blowing up i don't know I, I find like little scenes like that are kind of fun you know but when you get to that point where uh they, they break up and the droids are looking at him, you know, and 3 goes, R2, which way is safer? And R2 is looking, he's like, the two captains take way too many risks. Let's stick with the princess. <laughs> I, again, I, I love the banter going on between these two. And in one aspect, one aspect only, I'm kind of envious or, or jealous or, or regretful that R2 didn't get to speak in the films. Because to be able to understand the banter makes these two's interactions so much funnier. I mean, granted, it still works with 3PO repeating back whatever R2 said. I am not a monkey wrench, you know? I mean, 
I don't know. I, I like the banter back and forth between these guys and stuff. And again, the art, I, I really dig the poses of the characters, the, the freezing of the action, the way they're drawn, the way, like, there's a scene with Anakin Starkiller and Whiteson walking down the hall, and Anakin's got his legs bent and Starkiller's are straight, but Starkiller looks like he's in the middle of a power walk. So, I mean, it, it really, it all plays so very well. And then plus, when they get to that point where they find the kids inside those containers, you know, you can see Biggs is, is starting to change red, and I like the way they go about it. You know, there was a solid red before they put the battery packs in. They put the battery pack into the one, it goes solid green. They put the battery pack into the other one, it goes solid green. But by this point, the green is starting to fade and red is starting to come up on it. And I like the way, as it continues from this point forward all the way through, they continue with that. So, you know, that was another cool thing. When Anakin throws that disruptor thing and uh, White Sun goes, training is over, Anakin. The Empire cares nothing for Jedi Bendu ways. Again... You know, we, we've mentioned how these guys look like they're modeled after characters. And I go to that kid, uh, Johnny, from Hackers and from the Sherlock show. I mean, I swear, it's like I'm looking right at that guy. Uh, and I like the fact that they had that whole scene with Anakin, you know, on the other side of the door. And they grab his feet and drag him through. I don't know. Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of Star Trek uh, First Contact when Data got captured by the Borg. But hey, I liked it. It was fun. Uh, the whole Princess Leia love thing. I mean, I, I mentioned it when you had mentioned it. The look on Anakin's face when she drops the, I think I love you. Like, he has a look like, what the? F <laughs> and then he goes on to, to, to bash on her, which I don't know. I think that, that kind of fit with his character, where his character was at, only to have the whole White Sun connection go back. And he's like, we're in love, as you put it. I mean, even then, like, he's got that, that, that teenage kid, like, you can't tell me no, I'm going to do it, look on his face. <laughs> so you're kind of, like, glad that the bombing and stuff goes off at that point. You're like, oh, thank goodness they can get out of here. And, you know, I mean, I think for me with Whiteson's character, like, they've done a really good job of keeping his character looking. Like, there's a level of badassery to every pose and every facial expression. I mean, when he's like, ready, general, bearing set. Like, he looks like he's ready to start shooting some fools up, you know? Like, I'm all ex excited for it. So... When we get into the next issue and what's going on with his progression, I mean, like, I was I was feeling it. Like, that that built everything up because of how they've been portraying that character thus far. I think we should probably take a second to, to maybe go a little bit more into the whole absurdity of the love angle here. Because it really, it, it's funny to me. Because people mocked, and still do, mock episode two because of how quickly... And somewhat ridiculously, Anakin and Padme fall in love, right? We start out, basically Anakin's been obsessed with her since he was nine or ten years old at this point. Um, thinking about her constantly. So he's got a thing for her, but it's almost in like a weird stalker sort of way. And then you've got her. She met him when she, w when she was 14. He was nine, about to turn ten. And there's sort of this question of, well... You know, it, it, does she look at him as a peer or does she look at him still as a child? And she even said at the beginning, right, you know, you still remind me of the boy or you're still the little boy I met on Tatooine or however it is that she says it. And get this sense of, okay, so she looks at him as a younger person, kind of like Sabine looking at Ezra in Rebels. Hopefully there will not be a relationship forming between those two as we talked about on Rebels Roundtable and all. But as it goes across the episode... They get closer. She starts to see him more as an adult, as a 20-year-old in this case. Um, 
until finally they kiss. And even then she's like, you know, no, I shouldn't have done that. Which, of course, leaves him with that confused look on his face. I think one of the more human moments is his, I'm sorry, milady, And the look on his face, it just goes, what the F? Like, <laughs> women, dude, seriously. Until finally, of course, they have that, uh, their dinner in which she's dressed dominatrix style. And you're kind of like, um, excuse me. Aren't you supposed to be trying not to get him interested right now? Aren't you the one that said no? Until finally have their conversation about the relationship in which he suggests they could keep it a secret. She says she couldn't live with it. He's like, you know, it would destroy us. You know, she's starting to show that she has some feelings, but she's just not willing to go with it. Until finally they're about to die on Geonosis, about to be taken to the arena. And she pulls a savage garden on him. The old, <laughs> I truly, deeply... Love you. All you need is to throw madly in there and you get the song going on playing in the background <laughs> and everything. Uh, but at least, as quickly and as oddly as that progressed, it is a progression of her thinking of him one way, starts to think of him a different way. He starts to essentially wear her down. They admit their feelings but aren't willing to do something about it. And when faced with imminent death, they go ahead and express those feelings because they don't expect to live through the day. And it's after that that they have to decide what to do next. And mm -hmm. Anakin and Padme make the wrong choice, at least as the Jedi are concerned, to become married, which sets up a lot of the attachment things that are going to cause them all the problems in Episode 3. But it is a progression, even if it seems fast and sometimes kind of clunky. Very much like Anakin falling to the dark side and becoming Darth Vader in Episode 3. Oh, there's a progression that's been going on through the prequels, but in Episode 3, it feels kind of clunky and fast if you haven't read Matthew Stover's novelization. In this story, the Star Wars, there's no progression at all. It's, oh, I don't like you. Oh, I don't like you. Oh, I don't like you. Ew, boys have cooties. And then, I love you. The, the most realistic moment for him is the, what is this silly talk of love? Now, granted, he says it in a way that, you know, maybe Harrison Ford would have said if he was playing Anakin, you can write this stuff, George, but you just can't say it and sound serious, at least. But there's no progression. There's that. And then he just goes to his bunk and lays down. And I guess he's sitting there picturing her naked or something. Because all of a sudden he's like, <laughs> you know, I think I may love her, too. The only person with a realistic perspective on this is we're going to see in the next issue. Uh, and it's somewhat in that issue is White Sun. You know, she's a princess, you're a warrior, think about what you're doing. You know, in the next issue, he's going to be dissuading her from pursuing anything because of that difference. But as far as Leia and Anakin are concerned, the progression doesn't exist. It's just kind of snap your fingers and it's there. As if Lucas was trying to shoehorn a love story into a story that didn't already have one. And he's like, oh crap, I need a love story element too. And he shoehorns it into the rough draft. So for those who say... The love story in the prequels felt shoehorned in. It is leaps and bounds better and more developed than what we get here in this rough draft of A New Hope. But I think that says something very significant about Lucas's ability to write a love story. Until The most realistic love story that we get within the films is probably Han and Leia. And that was something that was not a Lucas alone type of thing, when that develops, Lucas has people writing the screenplays with him, and even a little bit with episode two, uh, with Jonathan Hales. So, yeah, take this as another illustration, not just of what might have been, but of what might have been with the love stories of Star Wars if Lucas was essentially was left to his own devices to figure out how to shoehorn them into a story, because it's barely there, and there's not a lot of logic 
to it. And I'm sure we'll have people disagreeing with this, just as I'm sure we're going to get an email about my comments about Obi-Wan being the least necessary sacrifice out of the six films at this point. But to me, the love story here not only falls flat, it falls flat and its face lands on a rake. Oh, I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying there. I mean, and it, it actually makes me stop and question the whole, you know, a lot of people talk about how Star Wars is a, is a story based on family. And, you know, think about that also, that when A New Hope came out, Luke and Leia weren't even brother and sister. I mean, so that whole concept of family wasn't even really there in the first Star Wars film. You know, I mean, so so there's that angle of it as well. It's like, oh, okay. But, yeah, this one, it, it really, really pushes it. I mean, you know, as, as you bring out with everything that we got in episode three, I mean, there's one aspect that, that I always thought about. When she put on that cougar outfit, like, at that point, it was like, okay, someone's trying to seduce somebody else here. Like, I don't know where in the film she decided she was in love with him, but she put that costume on. There had to be an ulterior motive. Well, or she was just like she was in the Clone Wars. She was just promiscuous and just wasn't paying attention. So I'm revealing some cleavage around my ex-boyfriend. It's all good. Well, not only that, but I mean, if you think back to episode two, okay, they're going into hiding. They're at the summer estate, but they've gone into hiding. So either she has a wardrobe with that kind of clothes there, which makes you wonder who she's been entertaining there in the past. Possibly Clovis. <laughs> or you gotta sit back and say, okay, they're carrying their luggage when they're talking about R2D2 protecting them and everything, as they're, you know, heading out to be taking uh taken to this place that's gonna be where they're, you know, safe and all. Um, it sort of begs the question, why did you pack that? Was that sort <laughs> of a just-in-case thing? This is like a teenager who's going out on a date who decides to pack some condoms inside his wallet. <laughs> yes, no, okay, there's got to be somebody that disagrees with us on that, but I, I, I have to say, I see that the same way you're seeing that, like, <laughs> she was, she was plotting, man, there was some plotting going on, whether Lucas is like, hey, you got to do some plotting, or, or she was like, hey, there's some character uh, room to grow here, I don't know, I mean, I think from her standpoint, she's obviously had to know that this guy was, five more minutes, five more minutes, about her for the last five, ten years, so, I, <laughs> It's so wrong on so many levels, and that was the one aspect of the the saga that I always had a hard time with. I mean, I wouldn't even date girls that were three years younger than me because I had a sister that was three years younger than me. So I'm like, man, how could she be dating a guy that's almost five five years younger than her? That's like that's like child molestation or something. I mean, granted, by the time they get together, they're both adults for the most part, but like there was that absurdity, but. When I compare it to the absurdity of this comic, it's like, okay, that was well thought out. <laughs> yeah, I guess I shouldn't say anything about the age difference thing, though. My wife and I, depending on what time of year it is, are nine or ten years apart. Uh, though we did not get together until that age difference really didn't make that much of a difference. You know, both being legal. Um, but, I don't know, it's, it's always struck me as kind of the funny thing with... Uh, with Star Wars in that in the prequels, you've got Anakin with, you know, uh, I care for you too, only I miss your mother kind of stuff going on with uh, him and Padme. And it seems almost like he's, well, I mean, it's, it's like Weird Al Yankovic said, right? You know, did you see him hitting on the queen though? He's just nine and she's 14. Oh, she, he's probably going to marry her someday type of thing <laughs> where, you know, thankfully at least, the way they meet in episode two at the beginning suggests that, yes, she did look at him as a child back then, and the feelings changed 
later, as opposed to him, who apparently had the hots for her from the time before he knew what having the hots for a girl actually probably meant. Um, but you know that that's it right there. The Senate scene. She she showed up. She saw him. She's like, "Oh, you're, you're a little boy." And then she looked down at his pants. She's like, "Whoa, okay, we're gonna reassess that." Oh, not something I needed to picture. Um, speaking of something that makes for an odd picture, we move on to issue six. Then, as the interesting image of well, Star Killer Sky walking. Because it seems like he's in space running away from two of these hunter-destroyers, these TIE fighters that is chasing after him. And it's not that far from what we get in the issue itself. So we pick up, the battle in space is going on, and Anakin is blasting away from the turret. You know, he's got a, you know, got one! You were lucky! Moment with White Sun, as opposed to, you know, that's great, kid, don't get cocky. But pretty much the same thing, only this one couldn't have been turned into quite as amusing of a joke in the mostly bad, but in that instance good uh, family guy star wars special if you know exactly what i'm talking about uh but in the midst of the battle uh anakin's turret gets blasted and he is yanked out or i guess pushed out by the the air escaping and whatnot into space not wearing any type of protective gear whatsoever luke sends r2 to try to help him as they move the ship into an asteroid field uh, to try to protect themselves from some of the Imperial attack here. And Anakin basically is in space, almost like he's swimming, uh, barely being missed by being shot by orange blasts coming from the TIE fighter-looking starfighters, until R2-D2 fires off a grappling hook, basically, uh, or almost like a... It's not even really a grappling hook, it almost looks like a fire extinguisher line that Anakin is able to grab onto and get pulled inside... And then R2 is able to fire out what sort of seems like it must be some kind of like cement blaster of some kind that seals up the breach. Um, but somehow Anakin survives this, um, which, you know, kind of strains a lot of cre- credibility. I thought it was kind of weird when you had um, the clone troopers able to do that in space in the Clone Wars or Plo Koon being able to do it with just his regular mask. This strains it even more, in my well- opinion. Well, okay, because you bring that up, I got to ask because I remember it might have even been Zahn's Heir to the Empire where Luke had a similar scene where Mara Jade's the one that saved him, where he was flying out of space. And that always struck me as odd back then, too. So, but I remember that scene as well. It's like that was always one of those things like, should not, when you're in outer space and you have no protection, shouldn't your skin just start expanding and stuff? Or imploding. I, I I thought there was like some aspect of that 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 would be very dangerous. I mean, especially the aspect of you're gonna flash freeze. I mean, there's so many different angles of how that's not good for you, right? <laughs> Maybe they're giving us an out on that though, because in the same shot where he's reaching for the the line that R two D two is shooting at him, it does have a sound effect zat for the blast of one of the TIE fighter beams. So maybe they're saying, hey, don't forget, sound exists in space, so physics don't quite work the same in the galaxy far, far away. Deal with it. Or excuse me, the galaxy farther away, or whatever it is that they said on the original cover. Or Um, maybe he's in a small pocket of atmosphere that's flown out. (laughs) Something. So he gets pulled inside. um, And we get another of these little, you know, tips towards the relationship. We don't hear Anakin say anything when he was initially brought in. And then when he is brought to White Sun and, you know, Leia shows up to check on him, she says, is he hurt? He'll be. And Anakin says, Leia, there's something. White Sun says, save it, Anakin. And R2 says, Anakin almost suffocated. But ever since I saved him, he keeps repeating your name. 
We'll just have to take his word for that because we didn't see any of that. But here we are again. It's, uh, you know, it's Luke upside down on, you know, Cloud City. <sighs> kind of moment there for him. And, uh, you know, give him thumbs up for some use of actual physics. A uh, An asteroid... A very tiny one manages to get through the screen of the ship, like the actual um, view screen, and crash into the bridge uh, and damage something inside it, damage one of the uh, systems. So the ship is in pretty bad shape. It's about to be destroyed. White Sun takes Anakin and R2 and sticks them into an escape pod. And then you've got White Sun and Leia in another escape pod, and then Han, 3PO, Luke and the boys in their little um, stasis pods going into escape pods. And boom, two of them blast off. The one that doesn't blast off is the one with White Sun and Leia. Turns out there's a faulty switch or the power is out. Or I guess, yeah, the power is out to that particular life pod. There's only one solution, and that is to activate it manually. So White Sun steps out, slams the door closed, grabs like a, a, a big, almost like a staff, but like a pipe or something, and slams it into the ejection controls and blasts the life pod away. And then the ship explodes, taking White Sun with it. As Luke says, Goodbye, White Sun. May the force of others be with you. And we're assuming it is White Sun. It's spelled W-H-I-T-S-U-N. Maybe it's Wit Sun. I'd like I... to think it's White Sun. Um, yeah. Like Baru White Sun, because otherwise it sounds kind of weird. Surely he was going for White Sun, not Wit Sun. You know, maybe it could be Watson. <laughs> hey, Watson, come over here. The different pods, all three of them, separate pods crash down onto the, I was going to say jungle planet beneath them, but it seems, depending on what type of trees you're looking at, somewhat looks like jungle, somewhat looks like um, forest. Kind of a cross between the jungle moon of Yavin 4 and the forest moon of Endor. In this case, it's a planet called Yavin. And in this case, the adventure's not over. They're not going to find a rebel base. They're there in the wilderness. And we have Han and Luke, and the two kids in the pods, both of which being carried by Luke at this point, um, and C-3PO are going to have to hunt down everyone else. Hunt down Leia, hunt down Luke and R2. Luke, for his part, is being attacked by a big, you know, spider creature. Uh, well, oversized, not bigger than him, but an oversized spider when he finally is able to get away from it and grab R2. Uh, the groups are essentially separated in order to make it easier to move uh, and to save the lives of the boys as their power packs are start starting to run low. Luke uh, basically wakes up the boys. Okay, uh, Biggs and Wendy are now woken up and, and ready to move on foot, essentially. Uh, as for Luke and R2, they find Leia's pod only to find that someone or something, because they see footprints, have taken her. Uh, the team remains split up, though. Essentially, what we're going to find is that Luke's team manages to run across a man named Owen Lars from Bestine, who has a home in the trees, kind of a, a Wookiee-style homes in the trees, um, and is talking about, is able to tell the group about, you know, what they can expect out there in the wilderness, mentions the fact that there is an Imperial outpost uh, nearby, five leagues away, that's class two. It's got a dozen star raiders, star fighters at it, which gives Luke an idea of how they might be able to continue on from here. As to Anakin and R2, they're searching for Leia and wind up finding a spot where there's a handful of basically big game hunters or bounty hunters um, based 
on concept art, of course, in this case, not described this way necessarily in the original Rough Draft script, but you have one that looks like Forlom, one that looks like Dengar, one that looks kind of like a Mandalorian, like Boba Fett, except with golden armor, and you've got yeah. one that seems to be wearing, like, Wookiee skin as clothing with sort of a weird Phantom of the Opera-type mask uh, on the character's face. Uh, for lack of a better term, something a little bit closer to, say, an Asajj Ventress. And you got one running around shirtless that looks somewhat like Bosk if he had somewhat cybernetic le- or parts to his legs. But these hunters have captured several Wookiees that they have strung up. Now, in this case, Wookiees that look somewhat like the Wookiees we know, but not exactly. A little more brutish, a little more Bigfoot-looking uh, in that sense. Uh, but they're strung up at this point, and they've captured Leia. They've gotten Leia away from her ship. And of course, Leia in this case seems to be channeling Padme Amidala's clothing woes. Just like in the arena on Geonosis, she gets slashed in the back and it somehow becomes a midriff and one of her uh, sleeves disappears. In this case, after being in a crash, apparently one of Leia's pant legs has disappeared and so has the top of her boots that go up past her knee. The shoe part of the boot is still there and the 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 legs have basically become a sh- like a pair of shorts on that side, but somehow that part got ripped away and the rest was not, which makes absolutely no logical sense whatsoever. And unless, it jumped- unless you're an alien whose reproductive parts are on your kneecap. Truly bizarre. Um, so they jump in. Um, or they, that is Anakin, R2 doesn't really do much of anything. Anakin jumps into the fray to save her, manages to be wounded when a rocket goes off, but another rocket manages to drop down and save the Wookiees. Uh, in, essentially in gratitude, it seems, for Anakin saving them, they're able to stop him from being blasted by the Dingar-looking bounty hunter, and the Wookiees carry off the unconscious Anakin back to their village. When he awakens in the village, um, he's approached by like a village elder, like a village super warrior wearing a helmet and everything and wielding a spear and an axe. And he sort of has to prove himself. Um, he fights against this alien warrior using the force, I guess, to a degree in the fight. Otherwise, how else would he survive? And finally, I guess the idea is that he he's carrying an axe. And I guess he flips the axe around and hits the the warrior in the chest with the butt end of it proving himself that he could have killed him if he wanted to no he he falls down and it breaks in half it it actually breaks in half because i had the same thing i had to look at that four or five times before you finally figured it out because when he gets half yeah he flungs down on the bottom of the other page he's holding it broke and he's uh and you can see the head of the axe where it's broken half see i'm not seeing that Uh, no i guess it's well, no, right across see, from where he's But that doesn't him. make any sense either. Because he winds up the the, the he tries to sling the axe, and yes, he falls down and the axe gets broken in half. And he and but then the 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 big creature dude, the big Wookiee shaman looking dude, throws the axe head at him and he catches it. And then he uses it slashing downward to snap the staff being carried by that warrior in half. So he's holding the half that's got the axe head on it when he delivers that final blow. And it looks like he either flips it in his grip and is holding it near the axe head that you can't see and bops him in the stomach, or he somehow drops it off screen and grabs the other half to bop him in the stomach, 
or we're supposed to believe that the entire axe head is somehow buried inside the Wookiee's chest and he manages to survive. It's very poorly drawn as far as understanding what in the hell is going on in those last few panels on the second to last page of this issue. Suffice to say, this proves himself to the Wookiees. Um, He says, thank you, your hugeness, um, as he's given uh, back his belt, and it looks like the Wookiees now have a new member of the tribe, as C-3PO might say uh, from Return of the Jedi, as the Wookiees cry out, Mala Gabla Buhebu, which apparently is some form of celebration. It looks like our heroes have been joined by another group of pathetic life forms. Um, we have our Wookiees joining, uh, which is something we will get into a little bit in the next episode and a little bit here in a moment once we get uh, Mark's initial thoughts. But that is where issue six and our coverage of this episode, at least, does wrap up story-wise. You know, I mean, I like the space battle and stuff going on, though. There is a moment where when Anakin gets sucked out and you see Leia, uh, they have a moment of it. And there's like, Anakin, your shield power is down. Abandon your position and seal that section report. Anakin, do you hear me? Anakin. And she has a look of complete panic on her face when that happens. And, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, they should have maybe moved the, her declaration of love till after something like that happened to him. Something to, you know, like, like how you mentioned with episode two, how we had that whole life or death moment. That's when they kind of came forward. Uh, so, so I had that question of it and stuff. I too, I like the fact that the asteroid came in and, and uh, knocked out the ship and stuff, and that they had to head towards Yavin. I thought that was kind of cool. And the fact that you know White Sun makes sure to keep Anakin and uh, Leia apart was interesting, you know. And he's like, she goes, "Are you sure Anakin will be all right?" I think so, but his feelings for you are dangerous. Feelings? Yes, you should discourage him. And I mean, I'm like, I, I love that too. I mean, it's it's just classic. And. When they get to that moment where everything breaks out, you know, I, I like the looks on the characters' faces. You know, White Sun's got this total look of panic rage. He's like, our power's out. And Leia looks like she's about to start crying. Is it a faulty switch? And he goes out, no, the whole bank is out. The main line is cut. And as he's shoving the panel back onto it, he's like, there's only one solution. She goes, but, but. And he grabs the, the that metal rod and jabs it in like he said. He goes, for freedom. And it launches her. But his for freedom. That makes me stop and wonder, you know, I really wish we would have known more about the Jedi Rebellion. You know, what exactly was the concepts involved? What were the the theological ideals that that kicked that in? I mean, you know, they talk about Aquila being the last of the free planets and, and he dies for freedom. But I really question, I mean, what exactly was the, the major, you know, cataclystic nature of the Rebellion that they decided to lose their freedom. I mean, we know what we got in actual saga where Palpatine, you know, passed all these laws and stuff to, to fool people into thinking that they were getting security in exchange for their freedom. But I mean, I, that, that sense of why he's dying for his freedom isn't there for me. I mean, I get, I should know it, but there's not enough there to, to capture my heart. Like, I mean, it's a powerful scene, but his for freedom doesn't have a brave heart feel to it. You know, where he's dying at the end. And I, I feel like it should, that there's a little bit out of context there to give me that little bit to push me up over into the, oh my God, this comic's got me crying, you know, mode. Instead, I was kind of more like, I'm missing something here. And it becomes more easier to mock because you just, you didn't connect. And that I, I really, I felt like that for freedom, there should have been a connection there beyond the fact that the panel looked really cool and that Whiteson was sacrificing himself for Leia. I, I felt like there was a theological reason for it that was just completely missed on me. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Nate. 
Well, it goes back to the thing we talked about in the last episode where there really needs to be a sense that the, the, the different governments that they're choosing between are freedom versus tyranny. Or, as in the case of the Star Wars saga we know and love, between an empire and a republic. A place where one individual has all the power, a dictatorship essentially, versus a place where people actually have a voice. You choose elected leaders, they go out and lead. That is, of course, not to be confused with actual democracy. Democracy is everybody gets a voice, everybody votes on everything, like they had in Athens and ancient Greece for those who were actually citizens. Um, actual democracy is something our founding fathers detested. They wanted a republic, a representative democracy, which is what we actually have. But there's this difference between people having a voice and people not having a voice that is sort of the, the cornerstone of the American experience, at least. And I would say about the last 100, 200 years of world history and the struggles that we've seen. Except in this case, we don't get that type of clear-cut split. We get this sense that supposedly the Jedi and Aquilae are fighting for freedom. It's the last free system. It's the Jedi that are left from the Jedi Rebellion, whatever that was. But we don't get any sense that there's any type of... of democracy slash republic going on on Aquilae. They have a king and a queen. It's apparently hereditary. And only once, I believe, do we ever get a sense that there really is any kind of a separation of powers at all, at least when it comes to military powers between the king and the counselor, senator, whoever it was they needed to actually sign off on the war powers and whatnot. Um, unless we're supposed to just assume that this is some kind of constitutional monarchy, that is a monarchy where there is a constitution that limits the powers of the king and queen, um, that does give people a voice, say, through a parliament or some type of other um, elected body, and the king and queen are essentially just figureheads of some kind. It's not that type of distinction. It's basically choosing which do you want. Do you want a dictatorship slash monarchy on the galactic level or a dictatorship slash monarchy on the local level? It's very much like I think now in a lot of cases when it comes to Washington, D.C., choosing between Washington Republicans or Washington Democrats. What size of the exact same thing do you want? And that's not really a clear-cut difference and doesn't give the sense that the heroes are fighting for something nearly as heroic and important as what we get in the actual produced Star Wars films. So the, for freedom, really doesn't ring true. It's a great moment, but you sit back and say, he's fighting for freedom, wherever there's trouble, right? Whitson is there, <laughs> but you don't get the sense that that's really what he's fighting for. There's no backing for the comment. It's just a cool moment. Um, it'd be like if you had a character who everybody really liked and haven't been a bad character in any way, and in the middle of it, um, you know, he does something and says, you know, for Diana. Well, let's know who the <laughs> hell Diana is. It really. Maybe a powerful seeming moment, and we can assume he knows someone named Diana. Were they in love? Was it someone he was with? Is she dead already? Now he's going to meet her in the afterlife? What's going on? Without context, it doesn't make much sense and doesn't have the emotional impact that it should, at least beyond the first reading or the first viewing. There needs to be some form of connection. And for what it's worth, yes, in my mind, the image I was thinking of was uh, Clash uh, from Injustice Gods Among Us, where Superman is pissed at something that's happened to Wonder Woman, for lack of a better term. Now, there was a couple other little issues here that that brought me out of it. Uh, right before the asteroid hits, on the page before that, uh, when uh, Skywalker decides it's time to abandon ship, 
he he yells, we may have to eject White Sun, abandon the turret. And I'm like, why is he talking into a weird looking microphone? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, uh, up to this point, I just couldn't imagine him actually holding on to a microphone like like Price is Right style, like like he's a game show host. Like that really threw me off. Like I was expecting like a, a head mic or something. I, honestly, I didn't even expect him actually yelling into a mic. Like he could have been reaching off the panel and pushing a button and that would have worked for me. But having him hold a microphone and screaming into it really made me stop and chuckle. Like I, I, I giggled about that. The other thing was the pods. Once they get down to Yavin, when Skywalker, it, you made the comment about it too. Skywalker's got the two pods on his back. And I question, why the hell is he doing all the work? Han has nothing. Put one on Han, man. He is a big, burly alien, man. Let that guy carry some of the weight. It's the least he can do. So you've got that aspect of it. You got Skywalker. He's carrying the two and all that. But when they wake up little Windy, uh, they wake up Windy. And, and of course, you know, Luke, he goes, we'll get Biggs out there too. He shouldn't be a problem. Okay, fine. That's great. You're getting the kids out of the pods. Then why is it three panels later, you've got 3PO, you've got Luke, you've got Han, and they're looking at the trappers, and Luke still has both pods attached to his back. He's got the one that's half empty. It's got the red slash turning, or the green slash turning all to red, and he's got one that's fully green. It's like, if you woke both kids up, why are you carrying these pods around? What is the purpose here? I mean, that really, I, I stopped right immediately and was like, what in the hell? Why are you carrying them? Uh, another one, you know, we, we keep going back to that concept of, you know, these were, they seem like they're pictures, imagery, and likenesses of actual actors. When we get to Owen Lars, uh, Nathan, I don't know if you've ever been a fan of the uh, Fast and the Furious franchise like I am, but they had a character in the first ones. He ended up coming back in the fifth one and dying. Uh he was the bearded guy. I can't think of his name, but he was the guy that didn't trust uh, uh, the Brian O'Connell character at the beginning. And he was always, you know, flicking him stuff. They end up getting in a fight over the tuna sandwich at the beginning of the first one. That guy, I swear to God, man, they, they take his likeness and made him Owen Lars. I, I like I love the fact that I could recognize these people, even though I'm not 100 percent recognizing them. Absolutely no personal experience with that series. So I'll just have to take your word for it. Um. One last thing, I guess, before we wrap this up and start looking at covers, at least from my perspective, is the Wookiees. Um, I'll go into why this bothers me so much in the next episode, because the way they play things out with the Wookiees, I think, really weakens the end of this story um, because of kind of some of the things they assume is happening with them. But what you're getting here, for lack of a better term, folks, what we've got is kind of... Uh, the indication of what Lucas had wanted to do that eventually leads to the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi. Because remember, the whole idea was that he had originally intended for there to be this big climactic struggle between these savages and the Empire. And the savages were going to be a planet of Wookiees. But eventually, after having Chewbacca be Han Solo's co-pilot, we get the sense that Chewbacca was more unique uh, as an, in terms of being a character that's kind of part and parcel with everyone else as opposed to being a savage the way he was originally meant to be, so unique from Lucas's original vision, and he didn't want to undermine that by showing then the Wookiees as savages, because he thought it would undermine the character of Chewbacca, even if Chewbacca is thought of as somewhat unusual among Wookiees, um, which was one of his earlier ways of sort of writing it off. So eventually, when we get to Return of the Jedi, we get basically um, many Wookiees, right? We get the Ewoks and actual you know, primitives, savages, whatever, 
fighting against and trying to bring down the Empire using their relatively limited technology. It's only in Episode 3 where we finally get to see the Wookiees battling, and we see them as sort of a cross between uh, what we sort of might have seen with, say, Chewbacca, you know, in the Millennium Falcon, versus the Ewoks. They have this uh, very natural setting, but, you know, advanced technology somewhat uh, leaning more towards sort of open canopies and stuff like that, open cockpits and whatnot, uh, uh, designs based more on wildlife and the like. Um, but we get to see essentially that the Wookiees are somewhat more advanced than what we expected from the Ewoks. Here what we've got is the Wookiees as originally intended as much more of an Ewok-level group of mostly savages. And unfortunately, as cool as that is to see, and the juxtaposition is cool to see between that and the Ewoks that we see later, it's going to wind up causing one of the logical fallacies and most idiotic elements of what we're going to see in the last two issues that, to me, undermines the climax of this version of the Star Wars. So just keep that in mind. It, it, by this point in the issues as I was reading, I was like, oh, cool, we're going to get to see the Wookiees in this form and see visuals of them. But having read the rough draft before, I knew it was coming, so that is tempered by a huge groan in the back of my mind. I don't think, if you're reading this along with us, I don't want to spoil it just yet, but suffice to say, I think you're going to find the way the Wookiees are used disappointing in the last two issues, to say the least. Well, you got books and ebooks. Why not Wooks and ebooks? Ha ha ha. Now, I got a quick question for you Zeb from Rebels. Now, is he supposed to be a character of Han Solo's type species? Or is he supposed to be kind of like what the Wookiees look like? Or is he a hodgepodge of both? Like, I mean, when I look at, at the Han Solo character, I see Zeb. But when I look at the Wookiees, I also see Zeb. So it's kind of like. Did they take the concept of what Han Solo was and the Wookiees and mix them together, and that's the Lasat species? He's an early concept of Chewbacca, uh, essentially, or based on an early concept drawing of Chewbacca. But I think that particular concept came after this version of the story. Okay. Yeah, because that was something, I mean, I was always recognizing likenesses of Zeb's character's species in both of these other species. But I was like, okay, obviously when they did Rebels, I mean, Chopper looks like he's almost a straight carbon copy of, you know, R2 in this version. So it, it was cool that they're going back to that rough draft and taking concepts like that and bringing it into Rebels. You know, uh, Rebels Roundtable, we were just talking about them doing similar with, you know, all the Macquarie stuff. So it, it, it's kind of cool to see how, you know, that's playing out and how they're doing that as an homage two things as well moving forward just rebels and with this so i, I don't know it, it had me wondering though immediately about zeb like okay wait how did that work out which character is based off of what <laughs> moving on to covers we've got covers four five and six uh when we get to our next episode we will also cover some of the covers uh variants that we missed last one because when i was collecting all the covers for the post i discovered there was a variant of number two and a couple more variants of number one i was like wow impressive but a there are no variants for these. We've just got four, five, and six. Uh, number four has got that that orangish color of uh, like number three had. Uh, it's weird because the angles of the characters—they're both charging towards you. Anakin Starkiller and Luke Skywalker make a desperate stand, and Anakin's running. He's leading with his right foot. He's got his sword kind of cocked back over his right shoulder, like he's going to come striking down. And Starkiller's got a similar pose, but he's standing on top of one of those ostriches. 
And it's like they look almost side by side, but obviously Luke is farther back. So it's kind of like the the depth there is kind of off. So it throws it off for me. Uh, Issue five, it's got one of those classic movie style feels that Nathan was mentioning uh, in last episode that I actually like it. Save the princess, save the galaxy. Heroes, anyone? Uh, And it's got Anakin kind of holding on to one of of Leia's hands. And she's kind of, she's got her hair flowing back. She's kind of almost got a Scarlett Johansson look to her. Uh, You got some of the Star Destroyers zooming across the way. And, you know, because they're different Star Destroyers than what we're accustomed to. These are more Starfighters. They're the, the Eon Flux or whatever you call it out of their drives is really burning a lot more than what you uh, imagine from a Star Destroyer in the saga. And then you've got Luke in the middle of a battle with Stormtroopers and one of them's got lightsaber kind of coming up behind him. I like the grittiness of this one. This one's a nice, solid one. Uh, But I would say out of all of these three, my favorite one is going to be six. Uh, Anakin Starkiller, lost in the Forbidden System. Which they never really mentioned why that system was forbidden. But I, I like it because it's like it looks like he's falling out of the uh the ship like he was doing in the in the issue where he gets sucked out of the gun turret. Only this one, it kind of looks like he's running as he's being sucked out. So it's like you almost don't realize that that's what's going on. Like you almost think like, okay, he's running and they've transposed it over a space battle, but it's him being sucked out. And there's the uh, tie fighters, which are called uh, something destroyer. I can't remember what it was, but they're flying towards one of them's blowing up or there's one blowing up behind him. But I don't know some about that cover. I really like the look of it. And it has that like lost in face feel with him kind of like falling backwards into the space battle and stuff. So for me, that was the one that really jumped out was the standout of them. These covers were pretty good. Um, number four, probably my least favorite of these three because, not even because of the whole perspective thing with how it seems like the, the angle's a little bit odd, but because it's got one of the killer ostriches on it, or emus, or uh, whatever it might be. Just It's just goofy. Now, background on this. Um, my dad's a veterinarian. So when I was living in Indiana, uh, when I was younger, uh, both when living with him and before when I would just you know, be uh, visiting him quite often after my parents' divorce and everything, uh, one of the things that I would do every once in a while is go with him to places like the zoo, where he was uh, on call as a veterinarian, but also to, I kid you not, ostrich ranches. There are several ostrich ranches in southern Indiana or around that little area um, because ostriches are grown for various purposes, including meat. You ever had ostrich? Tastes basically like hamburger, not like chicken. Um, but at one point, uh, one, of the, one of the more harrowing stories of his time as a veterinarian is one time he had to be taken to the emergency room and was all kinds of screwed up and unable to think straight because he got his ass whooped by an ostrich. He was going <laughs> to essentially try to... um to determine the gender on these various ostriches and whatnot, and you do that by checking the rear. And this one just didn't take well to it, and basically mule-kicked him in the chest and sent him into a a fence and whatnot. It was pretty ugly. Eventually, you know, he's fine and everything, and there's a little um, statuette of an ostrich sitting in his office that has a little plaque thing hanging around his neck that says winner and still champion or something along those lines. Um... But to me, an ostrich has always been kind of a weird thing, but it's been wrapped up with some of the family history. So ostriches don't seem like they're this weird thing you never see. And they're like these these creatures from far away. And ostriches just a freaking ostrich. They're just these weird looking, weird acting creatures that I spent a little bit of my childhood um, having a chance to be around. 
So to see him running with this ostrich, it's got these fat, these like sharp teeth and like a grrr going on with that Dino Rider style helmet on it. I can't <laughs> think anything but A, to laugh at it, and B, harness the power, Dino Riders, every single <laughs> time. So that's the one thing that takes me out of of the cover of issue four. It's a decent enough cover given what the source material is, but the source material of the whole riding killer ostriches thing is just weird. Um, I, I guess it works a little bit better when they're riding the, the birds in, I kid you not, sunny day in the void. And if a sunny day in the void is what I'm giving you as a good example of something, you know, it's not good. <laughs> that episode's horrible. Um, I really like the cover to five. As you said, it has sort of a movie poster feel to it. It also has the cool thing going on where because it's two separate images, or three, I guess, if you count the Star Destroyers, the one of Anakin and Leia, although granted they don't actually hold hands like this or have that kind of a look going on in the actual comic, um, because that's a separate image, you've got like the sun shining in the background of that. So the bottom has a black star field background. The top has the sun, and they block it out so that instead of it being you know, the Star Wars with the in white and the bo- uh, like a line going across it and then Star Wars being black outline, or excuse me, white outline with black inside. It's the same general logo, except now you've got the lines going out from the also take a right angle going downward and are sort of golden looking. And you got the sun shining behind the logo instead of it being just a star field or a dark planet behind it. So it looks a lot more dynamic. Uh, although, Surely they were purposely referencing heroes with save the princess, save the galaxy, as you said. If that wasn't a purposeful reference to heroes, shame on them, and they lose some nerd cred over that. Um, but if it was done on purpose, then hey, kudos to them, and they get a little extra nerd cred out of it. Um, as for six, Anakin Starkiller, lost in the forbidden system. Cool tagline. Cool shot of the TIE fighter zipping in and shooting. Cool shot of the planet. Ridiculous shot of Anakin looking like he is running away from them in space. It's a very surreal shot. I hope not meant to actually be him falling out of the ship. I hope it was just kind of one of those goofy things where you take things and juxtapose them into uh, a poster-type image that's not meant to actually fit together. It's just meant to look kind of neat. Um, But if that's meant to be taken seriously, it's really kind of ridiculous. I can't look at that cover without thinking of the song Dreamweaver. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hey, That's funny, because <laughs> I, I do, I like, I like Six, but Dreamweaver, that, that, that just made that classic. Oh, God, that's great. You know, when you point out with the uh, title on Five, though, you nailed it. Like, I hadn't even noticed that the bars and stuff coming around that. That's definitely what gives it the uh, classic movie poster feel for me in that regard. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, 
and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. Help us grow as a show. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only will you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsor, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you can get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that I'm going to get crap for some of my opinions on this episode. <laughs> yeah, you can't take it, don't dish it, or... Dish it and take it. I don't know. You know, Hans said you can write it, but you can't read it. So let's, let's just see how we could read it. I I wanted to thank you. I think I love you. What is this silly talk of love? 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 <laughs> I just, yeah. Oh, there's so many ways you can play with it. I just don't think it gets any better. And no, none of those make it better. <laughs> what is love, love? Leia, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. <laughs> oh, does that make her the star killer herself? Or the heart killer? Star killer? <laughs> star killer killer? For the star hyphen killer square. <laughs> oh, good. Now, moving into covers, we've got episodes. God, why am I doing it? Have you noticed, like, I do that with everything. If it's an issue, I'm calling it an episode. If it's an issue or an episode, I'm calling it an... Uh, yeah, I cannot yeah. speak. Ah. All right. So, speaking of covers... No, because I wasn't talking about covers. Or just go to your browser and type in Star Wars Beyond... Beyond the Fumes, because I... God, I can't talk today. 